Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. It's such a great privilege to have you in our listening audience today. I'm excited that you're with us, and I would love to hear from you. If Words of Grace is a part of your life, if this ministry is a blessing to you, I'd love for you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast. You can visit our church website, which is found at flintriverpbc.org. Again, that's flintriverpbc.org. And find a variety of ways to get in contact with us. Our mailing address is Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. And if you ever desire to make a contribution to Words of Grace, you can simply send a contribution to Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. That is the church that I pastor, the church that sponsors this broadcast in most of the locations where it airs. But really, the purpose of me inviting you to write and let me know that you listen is just so I know you're out there. Knowing that we have a listening audience makes this ministry worthwhile. The fact that you listen and that God, through my insignificant efforts, has blessed you through the sharing of His Word, it energizes us, and we are so very thankful to be used of the Lord. If you live in the Huntsville area and you do not have a church home, I would invite you to join us any Sunday morning at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. It would be our privilege to have you in worship. broadcast today is entitled Three Points from the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is a sermon that Jesus preached directly before 
leaving the upper room in which he observed Passover and in which he appointed, he instituted the communion service, his supper, the Lord's Supper, as we commonly call it. He delivers this one final sermon in that upper room before departing, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane all night. And as you know, early that morning he was arrested, he was tried, he was put before three mock trials, and by the end of the next day he would have given his life upon the cross of Calvary, redeeming us from all iniquity, saving us from our sins, and on the third day he rose again. Now, as you might expect, as this is this last message, the last words that he is going to say to all of these men together before this would take place in his life. There's a lot of wisdom that he gives them. There's a lot of comfort that he gives them. He tells of future things, as we will see today, and he gives them instruction. We're going to look at three major points that he would emphasize to his disciples. Other points could be made, but we will look at today just three of them. This message technically begins in chapter 14, But the conversation and some of the things that he said to them that he will reiterate in this message are in the end of John chapter 13. So what we call the Upper Room Discourse begins in John 14, 1, and it continues through John 17. In John 17, 1, Jesus begins to pray. He ends this message with prayer. And then in chapter 18, in verse 1, after he had said all of these words, He went out and he prayed with his disciples. It was there that Judas Iscariot would find him and he would be arrested. The first point that we want to consider is in John chapter 14 and verse 1. Jesus begins this message. Now, he's been speaking with them again throughout the previous chapter, but here he begins this uninterrupted monologue, as it were, this sermon that we call the Upper Room Discourse. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What an awesome and comforting thought it is that as Jesus, knowing that he's about to go to the cross of Calvary, knowing that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be beaten and pummeled in three mock trials, rather than lamenting what he is going to experience, rather than maybe just trying to relax, he preaches a message warning his disciples of the trouble that is to come, comforting their hearts with this statement, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Now, sometimes commentators and people in our Modern American landscape used this language, let not your heart be troubled, to apply to so many various things in life, but I'm often a bit put off by that. I think these words, let not your heart be troubled, ought to apply in our minds, not to taking heart when we look at the landscape of our country, but they need to be applied to this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to go away. He will be crucified. He'll be buried for three days. He'll rise again and After 40 days of periodically appearing to the disciples, he ascends up to glory where he awaits his second coming, his return, where he rules and reigns over his creation even today. And as Jesus prepares to go away, as he prepares them for his departure, his message to them is, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, your believers in the God of the Old Testament, believe also in me. 
Now, what might shake their faith in him? Well, these men love him, they believe in him, but before the end of the next day, they would see him arrested and beaten and scourged and crucified. They would see him die, and that would very much shake their faith. It overturned their faith in him for a season. As the two on the road to Emmaus said, we trusted that it was he that should have redeemed Israel, the apostles, as Jesus has been placed in the tomb. They're huddled into a room together. Some of them have scattered. Their whole world has been turned upside down. They are heartbroken. They are afraid. They are confused. And Jesus begins this last sermon to them, this last message. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in me. Now, the glorious thing about it, their shaken faith didn't affect of the successfulness of his sacrifice to them. It didn't shake his love for them. It didn't hinder his redemption of them. His love for them is that strong that nothing can separate them from his love. But Jesus wants their hearts to not be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, Jesus begins to give us a reason to rejoice. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, Jesus says, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there's room. There's a place for you to abide. There's a place for you all to be there. Many mansions for many children in his house. He has abundant room for them. I love this gospel truth that in the family of God, there are not just a few people who will know him. There are not just a few people who are saved, but there are many mansions because there are many children. Jesus shed his blood for many. He has brought many sons unto glory. He is the captain of their salvation. And as we see in Revelation 5 and Revelation 9, There is an innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed. And so obviously, then, we would expect there to be many mansions in his house. And he goes to prepare a place for them. Now, where does Jesus go to prepare this place? I don't believe the primary focus of that language is to say that Jesus is in glory today doing the work of a carpenter, building homes and building houses, adding rooms to the house of God so there's abundant space for each and every person who comes to know Christ. No, I believe that he went to the cross to legally prepare that place for them. And as we read in Hebrews, he, through the eternal spirit, made his offering to God. As he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, Jesus presented this offering to his Father. He then appears before his Father. His Father accepts that work, and on the third day he raised him again. He legally prepared for us a place to be with him in glory when he died for us upon the cross of Calvary. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also, and whither I go, you know, and the way you know. So Jesus says, first of all, let not your heart be troubled. And this point of comfort, despite the situation, would be one that he would repeat through this upper room discourse, the basis of this peace that their hearts were to experience is his redemptive work. 
Now, we live in a world with a messed up economy and out of control inflation, and there's violence in the street. The love of many has waxed cold. This world can be a terrible place, but we don't have to let our hearts be troubled. Why is that? Because Jesus has prepared a place for us in his Father's house, these mansions in which there will be no suffering, there will be no trouble, there will be no cause to mourn or to weep in his Father's house. Now, as Jesus says this, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. You know where I'm going. Thomas, the doubter, says unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. We don't know when you're going. We don't know why you're going. The curmudgeon Thomas would say, how are we supposed to know the way? Now, the word way means quite literally the route, the road, the journey. If you don't know where you're going, you have no idea what road to take. There are plenty of roads in the world that one could consider getting on and traveling, and each one would take you to a different place. But Lord, we don't even know the destination, let alone the route. Jesus says unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. What is the way to glory? What is the way to the Father? What is the way to the abode? That word mansion translates from abode. In the Father's house, there are many abodes. Well, the way to the Father is quite literally Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, Jesus says. You know, there are a lot of different opinions on that in the world. There are people that say, well, you've got to repent. That's the way to be with God. You've got to be baptized with our baptism. That's the way to be with God. Some people would say you've got to pray, recite a certain prayer, a certain way. Others might say, well, you've got to join our order and stay in our order forever. Some people say you have to do more good works than bad works. And I'm over here looking at Scripture, understanding that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's none that does good, no, not one, according to Romans chapter 3. What is the way to God the Father? Well, according to Jesus, He is the way. Not the church of your membership, not your preacher, not your repentance, not your holding out faithful to the end, but beloved, Jesus is the way to the Father. Now, you and I can rejoice in that. I go to heaven, not because of what I've done, because the Lord knows there's nothing that I could do to earn my way to heaven. I go to heaven because Jesus Christ died for me. And when Christ died for me, he gave me his righteousness because he took my condemnation upon himself as he hanged upon the tree. He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, as Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says. So Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to God. I love what Paul says about salvation in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you and I contributed to our salvation, we would boast. Because human beings are natural braggarts. We see this every day in the workplace. We see it as musicians. We brag so intensely as human beings that we argue with each other in our arrogance fueled by our egos about our accomplishments to out-accomplish the others who are around us. 
If salvation were by the works that we do, you and I would boast. But salvation is by grace, lest any man boast. Jesus says here, I am the way. I am the truth. Truth personified. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Another subject for another day. Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not to say that Jesus is the person of the Father in the Godhead. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. We baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The Trinity, the Triunity, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father isn't one-third God. The Son isn't one-third God. The Spirit isn't one-third God. The Father is God. And yet the Father is not the Son. The Son is God. And yet the Son is not the Spirit or the Father. And the Spirit is God. And yet the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. There are three, and these three are one. And yet at the same time, there are three that bear record in heaven, the three persons of the Godhead. And so to reply to Philip, who says, well, Lord, just show us the Father then. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, because Jesus is deity. He is the Word of God made flesh, God's eternal Son, incarnate in human form, verily God, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. And so Jesus begins this sermon with the statement, not to let their hearts be troubled because he is going to prepare a place. It will look like he's defeated. It will look like everything they have come to know and trust and believe over the past three and a half years of their discipleship has come to nothing, that they were all wrong. But in the very midst of Jesus' suffering, what looked like defeat was actually the greatest victory that creation has ever known as Jesus died for the sins of his people and was victorious. The next point that I want to emphasize out of this Upper Room Discourse, which is one of the major points of it, is that as Jesus goes away, he will send the Comforter. Look at verse 25 of John chapter 14, and he would reiterate this thought throughout the Gospel of John in this Upper Room Discourse. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. That's why we have the Gospels because the Holy Spirit brought these things to their remembrance, and they write them through divine inspiration. And then Jesus begins teaching about peace. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, and as comforted people, we have what? We have peace. Now, to be very clear, in the apostolic age, as these apostles were still laboring in the world, the Holy Spirit gave them unique, particular gifts that only were given to the apostles. And so when you read Mark chapter 16, you get a little bit of the flavor of that gifting. They could heal the sick. They could cast out devils. If they're bit with a venomous snake, it will not kill them. You and I don't have that ability. The apostles did. You see an example of that in Paul's ministry. A snake jumps out of a fire they had just started after washing to shore on driftwood after a shipwreck. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Never let anybody tell you that the Bible is boring. Paul makes a fire, he's warming himself, and out comes a snake. It bites Paul, he shakes it into the fire, and he goes about his business. Those apostles had miraculous gifts that you and I do not have today. But even though this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the direct personal presence of the Holy Spirit, manifested itself 
to them, and that day came to an end, don't think for a moment that the Holy Spirit is not with us very personally today to comfort us in all of our sorrow and all of our affliction. In fact, every single child of God on this planet, the Holy Spirit does make intercession for them in their hearts with groanings that cannot be uttered. In the book of Romans chapter 8, we read that in verse 26, "...the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered." The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. We don't even know sometimes what we should pray for. And there are so many times that we are afraid, or that we are discouraged, or we are in the depth of sorrow and mourning that we can't even get the words out to pray. But the Holy Spirit, beloved, the Holy Spirit makes groanings within you that cannot be uttered. And he that knows the mind of the Spirit, the Son, makes intercession to the Father on our behalf. By the way, the Trinity is in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit groaning, the Son knowing the mind of the Spirit, and then making intercession to God for us. The three-in-one God in action on our behalf is there in Romans 8.27. The giving of the Holy Spirit is against a very dark backdrop in the lives of these apostles. Number one, Jesus goes away and sends the Comforter. In fact, he said if he doesn't go away, the Comforter would not come. But since he goes away, the Comforter shall come. But this Comforter that will be sent unto us from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, which testifies of Christ, this comforter is sent in the backdrop of extreme persecution. Notice this in John 16 and verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither thou goest. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. The comforter against the backdrop of the absence of Christ in a personal sense in their lives and the trouble that they would experience. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, what will the comforter do? Well, he comforts us, but notice he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. This same Spirit of truth would glorify Christ as he, in verse 13, guides them unto all truth. And so the second point that Jesus emphasizes in this upper room discourse, let not your heart be troubled, is point number one. Point number two is the Holy Spirit is given against the dark backdrop of persecution and the absence of Christ in a personal physical sense. Number three, what he would call a new commandment, what he has commanded us to do in his absence, and even the commandment that by keeping it, 
we actually tell everyone else in the world that we are the disciples of Jesus. John chapter 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, love one another to the degree that I have loved you, and no man has a greater love than the love that I have had for you, my disciples. But I want to back up and look at what Jesus says about loving one another, this new commandment, in John chapter 13. Little children, Jesus says in verse 33, Yet a little while I am with you, you shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. I'm going away, Jesus says. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. In the book of First John, John would reference this as an old commandment to love one another. John would go on to say in his first epistle that how can we say that we love God whom we have not seen when we don't love one another that we have seen? This is the new commandment, which is an old commandment, but the new commandment that Jesus had gave to love one another the way Jesus had loved them. He says something interesting in verse 35, and this is the last point that we want to emphasize on today's broadcast. If I were to ask you, how does someone identify you as a Christian? How are you identified as a believer? You might say, well, I'm identified as a believer because I have a Bible. Well, it's good that you have a Bible. I hope you have a Bible. I hope you read your Bible. Somebody might say, well, I have a certificate at home when I joined the church and was baptized. Well, it's a good thing that you joined the church and that you were baptized. Somebody might say, well, they'll know I'm a Christian because I have a tattoo of a cross on my arm, or perhaps a Bible verse or a Greek word that's significant in Scripture. Someone might say, well, I've got a emblem of a fish on the back of my car, letting everyone know that sees me driving down the road that I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know how Jesus told us to identify that we are disciples? What is it about a Christian that identifies them to the entire rest of the world? By this, by loving one another, all men shall know that ye are my disciples if you have love one to another. The way Jesus has instituted his church in the world, the number one identifying mark of his disciples is that they love one another. Now, that is a convicting thought to me. I'm sure it's a convicting thought to you. Might we ever endeavor to love one another more like Jesus has loved us that others would see, identify us as followers of Christ, and that God in glory would be glorified. So, child of God, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus has prepared a place for us with the Father, and He is the way to get there. The Holy Spirit is sent into our lives to comfort us, to lead us into truth, to give us peace, might we ask for him to be in our presence each and every day. And lastly, as the followers of Christ, might we be easy to identify as followers of Jesus as we love one another 
the way we ought. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.